equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now Displayed with good intentions Welcome to One of Two Hundred. We're here for another midweek episode I am joined by two co-hosts uh, we've got Dr. Arama Rata. Welcome to the podcast. Kia ora. And Dr. Josephine uh, Vagis. How's it going? Kia ora. Um, going okay. Um, some sleepless nights still. Um, you know, trying to deal with everything that's going on globally. Uh, but other than that, you know, I'm 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 fine. You know, compared to other people across the world who are actually at the front lines of some of these conflicts, whether it's in Congo, in Sudan, or in Palestine, you know, we are we are fine here. Yeah, and that's what we wanted to uh, get into today. Uh, we are all the way over the other side of the world in New Zealand, uh, but we've been following the ongoing genocide in Gaza. It's not being great here in, in the political and media coverage, uh, despite three weeks of really well-attended protests by members of the public here, um, increasingly clear evidence uh, of intent from the Israeli government uh, to undertake uh, genocidal activities and ethnic cleansing, increased media coverage of a lot of this as well, uh, and uh, media coming directly out of Gaza, showing the horrific atrocities that are occurring. And we've even started to see, uh, unlike the the first week, uh, a consolidation of the international uh, response uh, with a recent unbinding uh, UN ruling around a, and humanitarian truce. New Zealand voted for that. They they voted to, uh, you know, s- stop yeah. military activities and allow aid into Gaza. Josephine, you've been talking about this a, a bit and you had a piece out, I think it came out today. Yeah, I'm quoted in, in a piece uh, by Mick Hall um, in his Substack, which I highly recommend all uh, the one of 200 listeners to check out. It's called In Context by uh, Mick Hall. We'll drop that in um, the summary today. And, you know, he's been covering um, this issue quite closely. You know, the, one of his articles is about a Kiwi um, priest uh, in in, uh, in in the area. I think he's in um, Jerusalem or West Bank, if I remember correctly, um, either of those places. And he's calling for New Zealand to step in and try and, you know, and negotiate a solution and advocate for peace. Um that aside, you know, the, the vote happened, um, you know, I think it was last week and it was um, a resolution uh, put forward by Arab nations. Uh, 120 members of the United Nations supported it. So it was a ceasefire resolution. Um, 14 members voted against it, which included United States and its usual friends, um, except New Zealand. Um, plus six Pacific Island countries and uh, and the rest of the countries abstained, about 44 countries abstained. And um, Solomon Islands is one country, I think, I, I'm not sure if it's Solomon Islands, but one Pacific country um, abstain, completely was absent from the vote. Um, so that's interesting because it, it, even though 120 countries have expressed their concerns about 
the situation in Gaza and, uh, you know, have been advocating for a ceasefire, you know, nothing has happened. The bombardment continues most recently in the Jabalia refugee camp, where it's reported that hundreds of people have died. So, you know, there's no resolution to this conflict so far, even though 120 countries in the world we must question what is the purpose of the United Nations at this point, right? Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to discuss today, Kyle. Yeah, and the head of the United Nations since, since the outset has been calling for differing levels of uh, humanitarian access or humanitarian pause uh, and kind of becoming more and more urgent uh, in those calls. But, like... We've seen stuff like the Israeli social media accounts just actively trolling the UN. As you say, what what is the purpose of that here? Uh, Arama, you've worked in the space for years now. What has your kind of analysis of, of what's happening here been in the last three weeks? Yeah, I think that um, you know, as Josephine outlined, there's just this overwhelming support around the world for Palestine in this moment. Um, overwhelming support for a truce to happen and yet we have the US and we have Israel pursuing their genocidal campaign and it really not only draws into question the um, effectiveness of the UN but the legitimacy of the entire so-called rules-based order um you know we're seeing that the types of statements that they make um around the 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 activities they pursue overseas around ideas like human rights, democracy, peacekeeping, like all of these just have zero legitimacy. And we're seeing Israel and the United States just undo themselves um, because of the contradictions in their own actions. Um, and and it's not just exposing um, the lies at the very foundation of that international order but also our own so-called democracy, you know, with this government that's come in, I think it's become clear to a lot of people that our elections go to the highest bidder. And the uh, lack of differentiation between the Chris's, not only in name, but also in deed, is showing that our elected officials are not actually making decisions. Our elected representatives are not really the ones making the decision. And I really like the way that um, Michael Parenti talks about this in his Against Empire text, where he really clearly differentiates between government, those elected representatives that we can put pressure on and they can like tweak policies in our interests and whatever groups that they represent's interests, um, and the state. So that difference between government and the state. And the state is all of those institutions that control violence, that have the power to use violence so the military and the police for example and those that state does not really respond to the will of the people that that state responds to its allies so it 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 responds to the imperialist agenda um, and and without massive pressure from civil society that state will do what it wants and the government will not intervene in its agenda um, which is why what we've been seeing with the protests and what have you are so, so important because it takes just a, a massive amount of pressure for our elected representatives to go against American imperialism. 
I really love that point, Arma. Um, we do need to make a distinction between the governments and the people. People have been on the streets, not only in a small country like New Zealand. You know, the cities have been thronging each and every weekend with cries of liberating Palestine, upholding the basic human rights. I mean, even if you're not coming from a colonial, anti-colonial perspective, uh, from a human rights lens, people are able to understand the plight of Palestinians. And the numbers are growing in Christchurch. The first week, I don't know, it was probably between 500 and 700. Maybe the second week we had 800 to 1,000. And so the numbers are e exploding across the world. And this is not just in, you know, the Middle East and North Africa where people identify, you know, a little bit more with Palestine uh, because they're also the victims of the same forces um, as a result of the resources their countries own, right? So we are talking about imperial violence, but it's not just there. It's across the world, the streets of, of London, New York, thronging some of the biggest protests we've seen, even bigger in some places than the 2003 anti-Iraq war protests and you know the media coverage of it has been scant and again and again the smears of anti-semitism thrown on people who are simply there to support the, the human rights of people the the lives of over 3,500 children that are lost uh, the future of an entire people so um, it's really, it's really, you know, it, it really talks about the disconnect and we must question, is it really democracy that we are living in? Are we? Because, you know, from the same kind of analysis like pa Michael Parenti um, does and many other scholars have done, including a 2014 Princeton research, uh, which, which came to the conclusion that United States public opinion has little to no influence on policy. It is mm -hmm. the the corporate lobbies, it is the business interests, it is the the profit-driven agendas of the largest corporations in the world, um, the head of which sits in the United States still, and they deploy the globe-spanning military empire to, to secure the interests of a very thin section of the United States um, uh, society. The vast majority of United States people, the common people, are struggling. Their lives are becoming more and more precarious, especially since um, the advent of neoliberalism. People are becoming increasingly homeless. Um, the life expectancy of the United States is declining. Um, Cuba has equal or higher, uh, you know, life expectancy than the United States, despite the embargoes and sanctions and isolation and all the tactics that the United States have been using to strangle Cuba. Um, China has surpassed the United States in life expectancy. So um, domestically, you know, the cohesion, the society is crumbling. It's becoming increasingly unstable. And yet they're using all their resources, the public money to kill people, to to to, you know, fatten the pockets of the shareholders of the military industrial complex, who are the people who are, you know, uh, benefiting from the death of children in Gaza, of the death of children in Congo, in Sudan, and so forth. So, you know, we need to talk about 
whether this system that we live under, the so-called liberal democracy, is even democratic. Even in New Zealand, it seems increasingly um, the interests of corporate lobbies and, you know, the wealthy supersede the democratic interests of common people in New Zealand. So it's time to question whether this is the system that is going to maintain peace and prosperity in the world and and facilitate development of the global south. And I would argue it's not. We, it's time to rethink and probably create something different but right now we continue pressuring we continue organizing and we continue imagining a better world yeah and going back to parenti he, he talks about that as well i have read more than one book but um <laughs> he does talk about how the empire will bleed the center to support the periphery in terms of all the things that we were just saying there mm. so it's and it kind of goes against um work like jay sakai's work on settler aristocracy so talking about how a certain segment of the um working class is able to benefit from imperial adventures overseas um whereas parenti kind of talks about no actually the the center is bled so it is not in the interest of the people that live in the heart of the empire to have all of this going on overseas and it's so worrying that the government that has just been elected in this country is has designs on increasing military spending and i think we need to be connecting people's outrage with what's happening in Palestine with New Zealand's involvement with with the US imperial projects and you know use that as a time to to kind of conscientize people around how our our military spending support we're just an appendage of the US military and how we need to start decoupling from the US this is something that uh, discussed if you've been following the podcast for a while um last five years all under a labor government we've talked about the increasing uh alignment between new zealand state uh and the american military mm-hmm. uh five eyes is obviously the the big one that everyone knows about but there's you know we've talked about AUKUS. <laughs> yeah yeah uh and, and you know different systems just being bundled together decisions being made that lock New Zealand into military contracts um, and software contracts that make it more and more difficult for that decoupling to occur. But it's becoming clearer and clearer as the US just swiftly, like it's it's just becoming so clear how far away they are from the rest of the world uh, in regards to their foreign policy. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the rules-based order, but that that just doesn't look like it exists at this point for anyone who has like a modicum of analysis. Let's look at what New Zealand has been saying uh, since three weeks ago uh, when this occurred. I, I want to begin with the very swift, almost like it was coordinated, uh, combination of Nanaya Mahuta uh, when she put out a series of tweets immediately calling for a de-escalation after... Uh, October 7th. What we saw was this incredibly bad faith campaign attacking her for not uh, immediately condemning Hamas. You know, and this is now something that was seen become a, a one of the main tools uh, that propagandists are using to attack the left um, or people who are talking about Palestinian solidarity or Palestinian liberation is to immediately hit them with, oh, do you condemn Hamas though? As if that would, that just nullifies everything else. Chris Hipkins, um, you know, still the prime minister at that point. The election hadn't uh, yet occurred. Very quickly uh, 
I did a, a series of uh, stand-ups saying, yes, of course, we condemn Hamas and violence and all civilians, um, all civilian deaths and any deaths are, are bad. But it felt like it set the scene for how the New Zealand government was allowed to respond. Since Absolutely. then, that's more or less continued um, until uh, a few days ago uh, with this vote in the UN. The lack of media coverage has, and especially around the, the pressure that the protests might have been able to leverage, has not helped with that, as well as the fact that we've been, we've had a government in waiting for the last two weeks, right? Uh, so neither uh, the incoming or outgoing prime minister uh, has really seemed like they're in the hot seat on this. I think Hipkins has made some kind of vague mouth sounds about it. Uh, and Luxon has said, I haven't seen any advice that Israel is uh, committing war crimes. What has your, as you've been following this, Arama, uh, what has your uh, analysis or, or critique of that been? How, how have you felt about the way the New Zealand foreign policy framework interacted with this? Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we often see leaders of parties when they're in opposition come out strongly against whatever position the prime minister takes on an issue. Um, but here, because they're both kind of sitting in that position of power, um, once they do get into that position of power, you very quickly see them immediately turn on a dime and just repeat the talking points of Washington. Um, and we've seen that here, they're both kind of sitting in this position of, of power as they're incoming and outgoing, and they're both just parroting these phrases that we become so sick of, Israel has a right to defend itself. It doesn't matter how many times you say that, it's not true. An occupying force does not have a right to defend the occupied territory. And that is why they need to say it so often, because it is not true. And, you know, it was, it was just so disappointing when he said that he had not been briefed. Like, this is one of the, you know, probably the biggest issue that that is happening on the planet globally, along with climate issues and yet he hasn't received a briefing and again that goes back to that that idea of the state being separate from government and doing what it wants um in the interests of of preserving capitalism um and then to see chris hipkins after the un resolution say that it was unrealistic to push for a ceasefire that's just disgusting and it's of course it's unrealistic if our leaders do nothing about it but we're seeing not just this this UN resolution and and the overwhelming support for it but also countries countries like Chile, Bolivia, Colombia, uh Jordan, Yemen declaring war we've seen that there are countries that are uh willing to take those extra steps even calls from Te Pāti Māori um to expel the US and Israeli ambassadors and so political pressure is possible for our our outgoing prime minister just to just say that a ceasefire is unrealistic i mean can you imagine being in his shoes where you your political career is essentially over you're exiting your role and yet you still have power to do something to prevent a genocide and you use that power and privilege with nothing to lose to say nothing against genocide, that is just beyond belief to me. To actively undermine the case for speaking against genocide, mm. even. It, it, it's worse, right? Like, it's sickening. He's a coward. I, <laughs> I mean, 
terrible, terrible choice. Um, uh, you know, I just want to present to you, ladies and gentlemen, the New Zealand Labour Party. This is the Labour leader of New Zealand. I mean, we are disappointed enough with Keir Starmer in the UK. What has happened to the Labour movements in the West? It's horrific. It's founded not... as an anti-war party and yet unable to speak against war. They have lost their way. It's pathetic. Um, I just wanted to say, um, you know, uh, Luxon saying he didn't get any advice. New Zealand's COVID policy was based on, you know, advice from the WHO. Um, The Secretary General of the United Nations uh, recently made a statement about this. Um, He renewed his demand for a ceasefire in Gaza and said that international law was being violated in the war. So the, the idea that there's no advice from experts on peace and conflict <laughs> is totally stupid and it's totally um, a lie. Um, and as a response to Guterres' statement, which is a very mild and neutral statement in my view, Israel sanctioned United Nations and they cancelled any visas to any United Nations officials from entering Israel. So, you know, there is plenty of advice. All um, human rights organizations calling this, you know, there's mass violations of international law happening, mm. um, bombing ambulances, bombing schools and, and hospitals, um, and then claiming that it was, you know, Hamas, and then, you know, going back and then going back and all these things are happening. But what they're trying to do is, you know, is throw sand at, at our eyes, um, distract and and make us look away from this when, you know, really a genocide is happening, extermination is happening. Uh, you know, yesterday I saw a member of the Neset who was a former um, media and broadcasting minister of um, uh, within the Likud party, which is Netanyahu's party. She wrote a big tweet and within that she calls for unity among Israeli people. Obviously, not all Israeli people support the genocide in Gaza. There are significant sections of Israeli society who have been protesting and the Israeli po- police have been going and violently suppressing those protests. So there is a call from the Israeli government for unity, uh, for the extermination, the wiping out of Gaza from the, you know, the face of, um, you know, that territory. Uh, Either they they must be killed or they must be, you know, pushed out into Egypt is what uh, the MP, sorry, member of Neset um, says in that tweet. You know, I don't want to, um, you know, um, quote her, I I urge all the listeners to go and have a look at uh, her comments. Um, yeah, so there is advice. Um, Medicine Sans Frontier, which is like Doctors Without Borders, uh, have also been making statements. They said at the beginning of the siege, when water, electricity, um, uh, and internet and food were cut, they said that this is you know, clear violation of international law. So there has been plenty of expert voices um, to advi- to provide context and advice for the New Zealand government. And these are the bodies that New Zealand claims to follow in other um, crises. So right now it's on purpose. They are ignoring these voices and it's cowardly. Yeah, and it's cowardly for what this means for Palestinians And it's also cowardly for what this means for stability in the region. We've seen more countries getting involved in the conflict and to sit on your hands and do nothing to try to prevent that that conflict spiraling out into the entire region is, yeah, as you say, um, stupid. 
and also um, cowardly. I think, you know, there's this other thing which is happening alongside the genocide in Gaza as well, right? Which even if they're, they're of the opinion that they don't want to get in uh, the, the United States face about this, the increasing encroachments into the West Bank and the arming of settler militias there, the the use of the crisis in Gaza by uh, groups in Israel to attack the other Palestinian territory, you know, New Zealand officials could talk about that. There is there is such a range of ways to do this that aren't stepping over a line with the United States, and they're refusing to even do that. They're they're barely calling for a a de-escalation at this point, mm-hmm. you know. And I don't know how much that will change when we have a prime minister again. Well, yeah, when you look at um, you know, the National Party and the last time that they were in government and when New Zealand was on the UN Security Council, they were one of the nations that that offered a resolution calling out the human rights violations of the settlements in uh, occupied territories. And yet there's no nuance, there's no, as you say, there's no um, looking at broader issues. It's just this straight up parroting of Biden. Um, And I think that speaks to what the agenda really is here. And that is complete annexation, complete territory grab, um, annihilation of the population. um, And, and, you know, even using this as a, as a way to escalate conflict and, and spill into other regions. Um, And for, yeah, for our, our leaders to go along with that is just sickening. The other thing is that, you know, even if, uh, our leaders here don't want to listen to NGOs and you know human rights organizations and the UN. They could listen to the advice of Israeli spokespeople themselves who have said, we are going to take over this territory. We want to wipe out every Palestinian in Gaza. Mm-hmm. These are things that they are regularly saying in Israeli media. It's, it's, all, it's, all, it's all over the internet. This is very obvious stuff. It's very clear. It doesn't, there's not a day that goes by without another Israeli spokesperson Admitting. talking about the, yeah, their, their intent for genocide. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, that's been since before day one. You know, that this is a this is a long-standing project with people have always known uh that this is particularly what Netanyahu has been aiming to do. And yet suddenly, you know, neither set of evidence uh, is enough for leaders in the Western world, uh, apparently, and especially within that that group of uh, people in Five Eyes. I am, I would be very surprised if once Luxon is in, uh, what do we call the ninth floor, the Prime Minister's office in the ninth floor? I was going to say the Oval Office, but <laughs> uh, no. Um, I'd be very surprised if things change um, for the better. Uh, I expect they're more likely to be get uh, to to get a lot worse. Uh, we've seen just in the last couple of days, uh, Christopher Luxon had to call out his uh, own MP, uh, third on the list, uh, Chris Bishop, mm-hmm. for responding to a query from a constituent. <laughs> Uh, presumably asking uh, him what the National Party stance and, and what New Zealand's stance was going to be uh, around the ongoing genocide in Gaza. And his response was to write back to them and do the whole, 
why aren't you bringing up Hamas? Why aren't you condemning Hamas? Yeah, just to propagandize, um, including a whole range of misinformation in there as well, to, to the extent that his party leader had to say, we, we expect better than that. Like that that language is too strong. Um, I've had a word with him. But if you have, if you, if the party is harboring those kind of opinions um, at that level of leadership within the party, this is a guy who was a campaign manager for, for the election. He's number three on the list. He's likely to get some pretty big portfolios. If the party is harboring that kind of ideological bent around, around this, then it could, the New Zealand stars could get a lot worse. Yeah, but in saying that, I think this also in some ways is good for the anti-war movement in New Zealand. Um, when there is a, a supposedly left party in power, it's very hard to to galvanise the left and the anti-war movement. Mm. Um, but now that we have far-right parties in power, we'll see people power really come together around this, which it's always a shame when it's, a, you know, Labour in power and um, or the Democrats in the US and you see like, oh, we don't mind bombs being dropped if it's if it's Democrats in power. Well, it's kind of the same here. Like if we look at our own anti-war movements, it's it's always when it's the a, a centre-right party or right party in power that we see the people come together, mass mobilisation, the amount of pressure that is required to actually have a government respond. And it's never pretty, um, but it is although we're going to see these awful policies this this um this backing israel we're going to see um attempts to increase military budgets but yet we will build power on the left and in the anti-war movements in this moment so so that's although it's depressing that's where i um i'm trying to like stay focused um in order to use what is a horrific circumstance mm. um to try and and build power in support of Palestine. Yeah, I just want to add a couple of points uh, here. We must be also thinking, you know, not only from the lens of the human rights of Palestinians, but also the larger um, economic and imperialist sort of um, schemes that are behind this. Like uh, President Joe Biden time and again reiterates that if there wasn't a, a Israel in the Middle East, we would have had to create mm -hmm. one. And it's interesting that he says we would have had we would have had to create one. It, he doesn't even say we will have to create an Israel. He just treats it as like one you know just a country we would have had to create one what he means is that israel from the perspective of the united states it's not linked to some sort of you know ideological or um, moral sort of position it's actually based on united states economic and strategic interests uh, the middle east is a um, a region of huge strategic interest it has some of the most the you know the most vast resources in terms of uh, petroleum in the world and uh, it's also strategically extremely important because it's got the Suez Canal the the Strait of Hormuz these are extremely important routes of trade uh, for the world so the United 
states and the imperial hegemon and their allies do need control over this region to secure the interests of the powers that actually control their policy, which is, you know, the military industrial complex, the oil lobby and the multiple other lobbies um, that actually own the government over there. So um, so we must think of it in that term. So for 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 United States, it's not out of a love for the people in Israel or something. It, it to me, it, it it looks like it's for their strategic interests. And without Israel, you know, they might lose control of the Middle East and its resources. And having Israel means that they've got an advanced military outpost in the middle of this resource-rich and strategic location, which connects the east between the west and has some of the most important trade routes in the world. So this is really, um, you know, United States, I think, empire, you know, reaching a a point where it's declining in its importance and it's you know it's not going to go out without creating you know a show and a, a, and violence and that's one aspect of this and i also want to say so th- you know this is upholding corporate interests over the democratic interests of the people and i feel like it was interesting to see new zealand support the ceasefire uh, resolution in the United Nations. Within two days, the prime minister, the caretaker prime minister, uh, saying that, you know, uh, it's unrealistic. Know, yeah, there's really nothing there to, for us to talk about the ceasefire and we support Israel. So it's what the hell happened between these two events? Did they get a call from Washington? Maybe we need Assange or, you know, a WikiLeaks um, mm-hmm. uh, expose to know what exactly happened for New Zealand's stand to change so drastically within the span of a few days. Anyway, if we talk to common people in New Zealand, I think that the common citizens in New Zealand, working class people, uh, you know, Maori, Pacifica, I don't think they have a huge um, affinity towards the United States. They want peace, prosperity in New Zealand. So, again, this is not a democratic position. I also want to touch upon uh, the claims of indigeneity. There is a debate about indigeneity in Israel. So, um, Zionists saying that Jews are the indigenous population, whereas, you know, the entire world uh, of people who have experienced colonization and the struggles of indigeneity support siding with uh, Palestinian people and their experience. So what exactly is indigeneity? So I just wanted to talk about this because this is an area where I do try to study and I'm an, it's an area where I'm doing some research on. Um, so I'll just, re, I'll, I'll just quote this definition uh, about of indigeneity. Indigeneity represents or who is indigenous? Um, so Juna in 2012 says it is the disadvantaged descendants of the peoples that inhabited a territory prior to colonization or prior to the formation of the existing state. So we are talking about prior to the formation of the existing state. So we're talking so in within that definition, the Palestinians were the people who in, inhabited that region prior to the existing state. Uh, Kenrick and Lewis in 2004 say that indigeneity is one side of a relationship between two unequally powerful groups of people. So in this case, there is a total asymmetry of power. So we know who is, you know, at the receiving end of oppression in terms of 
the asymmetry in power. Um, Kenrick and Lewis also say it focuses on the fundamental issues of power and dispossession that those calling themselves indigenous are concerned to address and the enduring social, economic and religious practices that constitute their relationships with land, resources and other people. So these are the sort of, this is the scholarship uh, around indigeneity. So we are looking at the existing power structures. We're not looking at thousands of years ago and what is written inside a religious text. So <laughs> <laughs> um, we are forming our politics based on the power relations that exist today. Who is dispossessed? Who is oppressed? Who has more power and who has less power? Who has been ghettoized into small enclaves of land that are hugely militarized where even one fly escaping is being recorded? And so this is why it's really you know, bizarre that the IDF, such an advanced military with 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 um, basically they have put a border around uh, Gaza. They won't allow a fly to enter or leave without their permission. And yet this happened. And, you know, Netanyahu's pretending that they didn't know about it. So there's many questions to be asked here. But the scholarship around indigeneity, uh, if you go by it, um, it is the Palestinians that are, um, you know, the disadvantaged in this relationship. And that's where uh, our conceptualization of uh, indigeneity lies. Yeah, and I would add to that, like I, I know that um, there are lots of claims made by um, Israel that that they are the indigenous people of the area and, and you know, you can get into some kind of debate about that, but it's really, really simple once you flip that question and ask who are the colonizers, right? Then it becomes completely clear who is the colonizer and who is the colonized. Um, there's also another little thing we can look at, which is um, there's this supposed indigenous co coalition for Israel, um, which is <clears throat> six people. Um, two of them are Māori, so only two of them are actually indigenous to these lands. Um, and uh, the others are made up of people from the Cook Islands, I believe, Niue, Samoa, Tonga, Zimbabwe. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the um, Indigenous Coalition for Israel doesn't include any Israelis. <laughs> because they know that they are not indigenous um, and they know the importance of this argument and, and the framing of this issue as an issue of settler colonialism, not religion, um, which is the true, the, the best frame of looking at this, this scenario, the best lens to apply is one of settler colonialism, but they know the danger of people seeing this for what it is. Um, and that's why they push so hard with forming these like supposed indigenous coalitions. This is why they push so hard to try to claim indigeneity. And and why um Palestine, the you know, Palestine was so so heavily pressured to the the indigenous people who who sat around and came up with UNDRIP, there was a lot of pressure on on those people to exclude Palestine from from that conversation because they know that the indigenous world is aligned with Palestine, but they try to present this Palestine-Israel supposed conflict as something very different um, so that we don't have that solidarity with them. It's it's really interesting to look at the, the members of that so-called indigenous coalition as well. We have people in there who um, have links to all these far-right parties, conspiracy theories. So we have um, overlaps with Freedom New Zealand, 
uh, Vision New Zealand, New Zeal, which used to be called One. There are links to the Destiny Church there as well, and we know that um, that they have been um, standing with Israel. Um, and and some of the issues that they're particularly interested in this coalition, like because you wonder, like, why are these non-Jewish people, non-Israeli people, so aligned with this project? It is those far-right agendas that they are that they are aligned on. So things like campaigning against LGBTQ rights, com- campaigning against reproductive rights, campaigning against euthanasia, and also, and ironically, campaigning against Maori rights. So there's this alignment that these groups have had with the anti-co-governance um, campaigns that have been happening. And so this is this is just a bunch of grifters who are jumping on this bandwagon because of their far-right agenda. Um, you also have... Um, support for Israel from Christian Zionists, which is significantly like this is a, a really historical thing, especially out of the globally, United States. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So these evangelical churches have this very literal way and a historical way of interpreting the Bible, where they believe that you know this word Israel that was written down thousands of years ago somehow applies to this modern state of Israel that's only 75 years old mm. um and they believe that there will that 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 Israelis have a right to return to Israel that they will that there will be once that happens that there will be a rapture so all the Christians will be saved and they'll go straight to heaven yeah and then that there will be this period of tribulation where where Jewish people will endure incredible suffering where there will be famine and disaster and war and yeah. so they're part of this project to you know support the settlements and put jewish people in place so that their 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 prophecy, prophecy, yeah, yeah. Their prophecy can come true and that jewish people will suffer and you know in the words of loki um there's nothing more anti-semitic than zionism um and christian zionism in particular and this is another one of those things where, like, don't just look to people who are pointing this out or even just to the Christian Zionists. In the last couple of weeks, um, it's, it's called The Prophecy of Isaiah, um, if, if you want to go and have a, a read. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, Netanyahu has referred to it directly. Oh. Um, and the UN, the Israel's um, ambassador to the UN, has visited the United States to talk to Christian Zionists about this prophecy directly uh, in an effort to drum up support uh, from the United States. It's it's horrific. But that brings us to, well, kind of, like it brings us in a roundabout way, um, talking about indigeneity, to the support uh, in the UN for the US and Israel from Pacific countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, because on the face of it, uh, and knowing what the US has done in the Pacific, uh, in terms of things like nuclear testing, uh, the militarization um, of these states, would, would kind of be uh, uncomfortable. And yet a large number of them voted direct. They didn't abstain even. They voted directly against the uh, UN resolution for a humanitarian truce. Adama, are you able to give some context around that? Yeah, so I think um, there are, there is this evangelical Christian Christian component to that in terms of popular opinion. There are massive efforts from Israel to try to, you know, present their case to Pacific peoples. They have all of these delegations that are taken to Israel. They strategically provide aid to Pacific nations who are neglected. So, so a lot of, I think, why Pacific nations vote in the way that they do is because of what 
the West have done to Pacific nations in terms of cutting them off from one another, in terms of having them rely on aid, having them rely on remittances for their economy. Yeah. So their economies are in such a state that they they need the the you know that this aid to con- continue to flow freely. And the only way that it does that is if they vote correctly at the UN. The only mm. way that it does this is if they support the correct overseas wars by sending you know they have really minuscule contributions in in the overall grand scheme of things but this is like a big military contribution they might send like 40 soldiers to um, a conflict overseas but that for them is quite a major contribution in terms of the population size and so so being such small states they're very easily um you know forced that they are really put in a position where they're forced to mm. kind of choose which block they vote with um in order to receive that that aid yeah um yeah i just i agree with all of that uh, arma and i just wanted to connect it back to the history of colonialism and colonial um power dynamics in the pacific so we are seeing for example the united states colonizing guam and hawaii uh, between 1898 and 1900 and now they have more territory there including american samoa uh, and other countries um, where they have a lot of um, influence it's also a highly militarized uh, place uh, united states has at least two military bases in guam and in uh, hawaii so it's uh, a question of security right um, uh, as well uh, France as well has a lot of imperialist interests in the region. They still have three territories, including New Caledonia uh, over there. They have an embassy there and, you know, they use it for strategic and military purposes. As you said, Kyle, France has also uh, done a lu- nuclear test in the region and in New Zealand activists got involved in it. Um, so this is the history of the region. Uh, Australia also, you know, operates as a colonial power there, uh, currently using Nauru and um, Manus Island as detention centers for other, you know, p- colonized people coming, uh, escaping uh, usually Western induced conflicts in their regions and detaining them in these specific islands. And so there's a huge power imbalance, like you said, Arma, and also New Zealand still is uh, has territory like Tokelau, um, which is a New Zealand territory. And so this is a zone of, you know, imperial conquest during the time of imperial Western imper- Euro-American uh, imperialism. And, and those power dynamics still hold today. And like you said, uh, the experience of colonization was one of, you know, what was not pleasant for the Pacific. So we see that the traditional economies were destroyed. They had, you know, uh, you know sustainable uh, subsistence economies based on the vast natural resources that existed around these islands. And then these small countries, these tiny countries get privatized and commercialized and um, sort of assimilated into the global neoliberal capitalist um, economy at the moment, which really disempowers and makes those people even more dependent on these, on their, on their oppressors for their day-to-day activities, which is why the aid becomes a huge, you know, um, factor uh, with in in diplomacy right so uh, i feel like there was a huge shift that happened um last year so we see um chi- the chinese foreign minister uh, visiting solomon islands last year and new zealand media western media are treating this with 
paranoia and you know this is the end of it uh, china's it's colonizing the pacific excuse me you are the colonizers right they are projecting it's pure projection based on their history of domination of destruction of taking the land the labor everything even now new zealand is exploiting labor from the pacific to you know fatten the profits of the horticulture and viticulture sector in new zealand um include the human rights commission calling it modern slavery right so new zealand still has a colonial relationship and and yet new zealand press along with australian press and united states you know treating one visit from a foreign minister to uh, uh to solomon islands as you know this is this is colonization and um so i will just also talk about what really happened at the united states uh, sorry united nations resolution so we have fiji marshall islands micronesia nauru papua new guinea tonga voted with the united states and israel um against ceasefire um australia palau tuvalu kiribati and vanuatu abstained samoa didn't even participate in the voting so we can see a majority of the pacific island nations either siding with or abstaining which is kind of like siding in my view um only the solomon islands and new zealand which later flip flop by the way uh, only the solomon islands among those small pacific island nations voted for a ceasefire which is so interesting and and you know so solomon islands is the country that made that security agreement with china last year and if the result of that is voting in favor of peace i think we must look at it in a positive light and i wish there was more agreements uh, mm-hmm. within the pacific uh, with the brics nations um and i would also add this so after the 2022 um you know agreement between um the solomon islands and china suddenly united states and france have a great interest in pacific mm-hmm. whom they have completely ignored right they just use exploit them and use them as military testing grounds and and those sorts of things they use their fishing companies to troll their fishing resources and all these things are happening but suddenly there's a great interest there biden calls for a U- united states pacific forum after many years and then and uh, pledges 800 million in aid for these small countries this is a huge sum and then later this year uh, biden again you know comes up with 20 billion aid package over 20 years uh, emmanuel macron who has never even thought about these countries for the first time visits um, papua new guinea as well as i think it's vanuatu i'm i'm not you know i'm not completely remembering that um uh, for the first time since he became a president so there have been you know sh- this pressure on these countries from these imperial powers and as you said arma there's a huge power imbalance the the traditional economies have been destroyed which means these countries are more and more dependent on their oppressors for their you know activities and yeah so this is the power dynamics and it's kind of a in my view it kind of links back to this tension that's rising uh between china and the united states and its allies and the pacific becoming um a stage for that um that power struggle yeah and one more thing about this that was really interesting sorry um is i i, I keep going but is how the fijian leader 
in Australia at a conference just a few weeks ago said that he wanted the Pacific to be the island, sorry, the ocean of peace and neutrality. And he mentions <laughs> and he mentions Ukraine, he mentions Palestine, he mentions China, and yet a few late weeks later he's changing the position and voting in, you know, with the United States against peace in Gaza. So what happened? Was there a phone call? Who knows? Um, we need, uh, you know, again, WikiLeaks. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's interesting to see that uh, flip-flop happen. But again, I think it's related to the power dynamics and the fact that colonization really disempowered these countries. Yeah, it's interesting as well when you talk about this aid, these aid packages that the US then announced for the Pacific. And it might seem like a lot of money, like $800 million. Is that what you said? Yeah. Um, but an aircraft carrier costs $13 billion, mm-hmm. you know, and they just look at Pacific nations as unsinkable air- aircraft carriers. Um, and so really there, that kind of puts into perspective what a drop in the ocean, this aid that is given to these Pacific nations really is, given the role and the strategic value of those islands to um, American imperialism. Um, so there are those... Also, those military ties go into um, the job opportunities in a lot of a lot of places in the Pacific. So, if we wonder why there is this allegiance, it's for many island uh, islands. There's not a lot of job prospects, and so joining the military and fighting um, with the West is is one of the few options that they have um, because their economies have so been exploited by by imperialism. So there's those diplomatic, there are those economic, there are those security. Um, reasons why Pacific Islands vote in the way that they do. Um, but then there's also direct interference on the part of of the West, for example, the US-backed coup in Fiji. And so these nations are not actually making choices in a vacuum. They're making choices based on the political pressure that they're under. Um, many of these uh, places um, kind of operate in a kind of feudal structure um, where most people are horribly oppressed and exploited by these supposed traditional but now corrupt um, elites, just as in uh, Maori have elites kind of installed that act as that comprador class that the state is able to negotiate with. The same is true in Pacific nations. And so when we talk about the way that the Pacific nations voted, we should not take away um, the resistance within those Pacific nations. Mm-hmm. Those people from Pacific nations that stand in solidarity with indigenous people, with the mm-hmm. global South. Um, you know, we see massive anti-war movements um, in the region and we shouldn't forget forget the role that they play there as well. And the, and the will of many of the people is is not in line with the decision that their leaders have made. Knowing what that, that current state of the politics is here um, from a foreign policy perspective and the different ways that uh, countries in the Pacific, well, leaders in the Pacific are aligning, what role can or should New Zealand be playing? What What's the I- ideal thing to do here? In terms of our role in the Pacific. <laughs> Absolutely. But oh, our, our I, role I in the Pacific as opposed like, to in regards to... colonialism of the Pacific, I think, would be would be key. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Stop, stop, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, one thing would be to treat Pacific Islands as partners. They, they use the word partners, but really... You know, the relationship is one of huge power asymmetry. 
um, New Zealand really needs to look at, you know, how it uh, interacts with the Pacific Island nations. Um, you know, the RSC scheme is a good example. Why doesn't why doesn't New Zealand treat RSC workers as other workers in New Zealand? And why? Yeah. Why aren't they treated equally? So they get a bit of deal be- in Australia, which tells you a lot. <laughs> Yeah, it can only be because of the colonial relationship we have with um, Pacific Islands. So mm-hmm. if they really want to, you know, they need to live up to their their rhetoric. Um, I heard uh, Anthony Albanese talking about partnership. You know, again, it is a relationship of domination and subjugation and power asymmetry and destruction of local economies and extraction of resources and labor. So... Yeah, I don't Absolutely. know. We need, yeah, we need more um, uh, progressive. Um, uh, and and not only do we need to kind of take a progressive role in the Pacific, we need to stop um, what we're doing in terms of acting as a broker of the US to support their agenda in the Pacific. If you look at um, how we were able to sell out our nuclear free um, treaty in order to favor the US if we look at AUKUS you know we, we've clearly time and again reassured the US that we will act as their broker on the one side secretly while all of this rhetoric that we espouse around um uh around us being a Pacific family and, and recognizing our position um as a South Pacific nation you know it's it's it is all uh rhetoric it is all disingenuous and I guess that speaks directly to the current conflict as well but is there anything that we could see from the incoming New Zealand government that could bring the Pacific uh, along with it in regards to uh, what's happening in Gaza or is this more a a longer term project is it do we see that as like uh, I don't use the words of Chris Hipkins but unrealistic um, at, at this point in the piece, given, as you've said, the seeming uh, preparation of the Pacific as a staging ground by the major powers. Uh, yeah, I do think it's unrealistic. And I think the reason it's unrealistic, it's be- because of the way that our policy with the Pacific is driven, not by, you know, values or um any recognition of the sovereignty of these nations and the um the agency of these nations is driven by in my view corporate interests so for new zealand um it is new zealand's massive horticulture and viticulture sector for example uh, that drives the government policy in relation to that uh, migrant worker program that we have and in relation to other areas as well you know the extraction of resources um and so forth it is the corporate sector you know the owner class the capitalist class that dictates in many ways new zealand's foreign policy like you we, we would have noticed that foreign policy in New Zealand under the Labour or National, like Jacinda Ardern's foreign policy, she went to the New York and met with BlackRock. And, you know, it was like, hey, BlackRock, you know, you're so awesome. Come to come to New Zealand. And BlackRock is like, it's one of the worst companies in the whole world. This is this is not a traditional capitalist con- uh, company that produces something. It simply owns assets. It It buys up 
public resources and profits out of them. And it advocates for neoliberal policies. Um, the people, the the working class people in France, for example, they note they noticed that BlackRock um, was one of the driving forces behind the pension reform there, and they uh, occupied BlackRock offices over there. And he look here, New Zealand's Labour Party, the so-called working class party um, <laughs> of New Zealand. They are like uh, Chris Hipkins is standing there with you know bent bent down. Oh, thank you for coming to. So we are bowing down to corporate power. This is New Zealand's foreign policy like other Western nations uh, and like during the times of colonization. Colonization is just this, right? It is the extension of capitalism beyond borders in the interest, not in the interest of the working class people, but in the interests of the capitalist class. So New Zealand foreign policy still is driven by the interests of the owner class. And unless that is addressed, I don't think it is realistic to think that we will have a better um, you know, per, uh, perspective and relationship with the Pacific. I think we're just about coming up to time on this, but Arama, did you want to kind of give us some hopes uh, or, or ideas about what you think the New Zealand government should be doing in regards to Gaza? Yeah, so you know what I think where where my energy is directed and where I see hope is is not coming from government. Obviously, it's it's coming from the people, um, and and just realizing what a moment of conscientization this has been for so many people. Um, we look at things like the the two thousand and eight. Sorry, the two was it two thousand and nine? The Operation Eight. <laughs> sorry, I forgot in the year. Um, Operation Eight was this like massive conscientizing moment because we could see so clearly that what we were being told by the press was complete garbage. And, you know, just a moment like this is just drawing those connections together as well. We can see that our media is lying to us. We can see that our politicians are insincere. Uh, we can see that these global institutions are completely ineffective. And so it's it's helping galvanize people's opposition to that. It's it's exposing the um the 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 the, the fantasy that is western democracy and so it's a, a massive moment of conscientization and and solidarity building that we're seeing across the globe and we have the opportunity to like build out not from a state to state perspective but as as people-led movements so regardless of what pacific nations have done and how they've voted and what they're likely to pass at the pacific islands forum we have an opportunity to reach out as as the people, as peoples, and come together um, in a mass movement in support of Palestine, opposing war, and 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 kind of taking that to its conclusion of of flipping that system, of realizing that our institutions are illegitimate, and creating something new. Yeah, I think that's um, a fantastic place to to wrap this up. Thank you so much, uh, both of you, for joining me, uh, Dr. Adam Arata and Dr. Josephine Vargis. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you so much. Um, Tautoko, on all your work, both of you really appreciate it. And I think that we need to have these discussions. And like you said, Arama, it is the people power that can overcome these forces, these deadly forces um, that, you know, I cannot describe it as anything else as a death machine, profit driven death machine that we must dismantle using people power. Thank mm. you. And thank you to our audience. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone. It's been another midweek episode of One of 200. Uh, 
fave us in your podcast app, share around. Um, we'll try and get some clips out from this as well. Uh, so you can share on our other social media uh, platforms. We'll be back on the weekend with current events, which will undoubtedly include uh, some further updates on the ongoing genocide in Gaza, uh, as well as perhaps some New Zealand politics. That's been another midweek episode of One of Two Hundred. We will catch you soon. If our fences are then I'm living a pointless life, but I'm learning all your lessons. Fucking politics is no distinction. The words are now. It's paid with good intentions, and I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say when they cross the border. Amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking race